Welcome in to Natchez Glen House Stories. This is going to be a great podcast because it's right before we're even recording, I always joke with everybody about this, that we could have conversations off the podcast or we can actually record them and have other people be able to hear them, which is of greater benefit to the larger community. My guest for this story is Richard Hockey from the Chicago Botanical Gardens. And Richard, just as we were getting ready to not record this, I was asking you, uh, one of the groups of plants that I wanted to have a conversation about, um, I'm in this knee-deep in the Symphiotrichum world in the last week. Uh, Paul Picton uh, from the UK wrote a book on asters, and now Ribia and Symphiotrichum, and we had all these taxonomic changes, Richard. Um, what, what gives? Why are there so many great gardens built with late-season interest? from asters, also known as symphiotrichum, but it doesn't feel like they get their just attention, Richard. Like, like, what's your take on that? Uh, well, I would say, uh, I would agree with you on that. And I would say that um, at least locally, part of the problem is a lot of the ones that we should be able to grow, we don't grow well. Uh, things like the New England aster, the Michael Mass Daisy, they're just, they just don't perform well for us. So when you see them, they're really, I mean, when you see one growing well, it's super exciting in the fall. Um, but if they're not grown well, you know, obviously they're not memorable. Uh, but I do think that, uh, I do wonder sometimes that people have just given up by fall. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, they're all about their spring garden and their early summer garden. And then they just, they just stop. Um, Another, another side for us up here, there are a lot of asters that are just native that we see on roadsides and, and um, you know, places where you didn't really plant a garden. And, and I think like Solidagos, they just become a back, backdrop or a background scene and they don't, don't necessarily uh, touch people as, you know, something they should plant. Do you also think there's just so, there were so many of them and now have we even confused people a little bit more? No offense to any of the botanists or taxonomists that listen out there, but now we did this moving where now they're no longer aster, they're symphiotrichum, they're eurybia, that they're, they're, they're not the in-your-face flower to begin with. Yeah. And now there's a lot of them. <laughs> they're, they're confusing almost from a nomenclature perspective. And like you said, maybe people have just been like, eh, whatever, not worth it. Give me a rose or a dahlia or a peony or something like that instead. Well, the name thing, I think, is definitely an issue. I mean, Aster is, it, it's obviously well-known and, and, and well-liked. And you put a, you put a name like uh, Symphotrichum or Dolaringria, I can't even say it, Eurybia, people just look past them. They don't even know what they're looking at. But if you put Aster there, I mean, that was the same issue with chrysanthemums. Um, so, yeah, I, don't, I, I, I actually applaud and, and, and like the fact that the genetics and the taxonomists have figured out, uh, you know, greater information there. But for the gardener, I'm not sure that it's helped much at all. Well, and one of the plants that I wanted to talk to you about, and I was mentioning this, was uh, Bridal Veil, which mm. is from Jim Alt there at the Chicago Botanical Garden, the breeder. And uh, one of my wholesale suppliers, I saw it on their list, the photo of it, which I think is from the Chicago Botanic Garden, was gorgeous. It, it's this really beautiful, sprawling, semi-upright uh, variety, but you just don't see it 
I mean, obviously you've got a tremendous amount of experience with that plant and seeing it. And I mean, it feels like it's great, but you, you don't see it that frequently. Well, which is true. Um, I will say, uh, first off, it's a hybrid with, um, I'm just going to call it Aster today, Aster, Aracoides, Snow Flurry. And, and then I don't remember what the other species was. I'm not, Jim doesn't always let us know what he's working with. Um, and so it has a feel of Snow Flurry, but it's a taller plant where a Snow Flurry is like six, eight inches tall. This is up to two feet tall. And it has that wonderful cascading effect. We, we named it Bridal Veil because we immediately struck by the fact that it looked like Spirea Bridal Wreath. And uh, I do have to say, I think maybe gardeners look past white asters, which is unfortunate, which might be part of the problem that plant had. But I will tell you last year, Jim, Jim and I were talking and he said that he, I think in 2019, he had started to push it again. So that is, he's pushing it out to his growers and his, his network because he doesn't think it got a good shake the first time around. And I, 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 I've always thought it was the white uh, versus a blue or whatever, or pink uh, that was the issue. But from the point of view of a, a good looking plant, that's a good looking plant and it's disease resistant. I mean, and it's covered literally a blanket, a uh, cascading blanket of white flowers. Well, and when I received it last year in the fall, it was like small, medium-sized plugs, it seems like it's going to be relatively vigorous and yeah. it put on good size, especially in a warm growing climate, in just a, a year. Does it seem pretty on the point for it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, ultimately for us in the trial, it was 24 inches tall and 54 inches wide. Wow. Um, so, I mean, one plant did a, a good, a good, good part of your garden, but we loved it. I mean, and people loved it. People that visited the garden, one of the, the, the nice things about um, our trial garden and our breeding garden is that it's open to the public. So when you're out there, they, they engage you, they tell you, they tell you what they like, what they don't like, but you also just see it passively. You, you see which plants they all gather and and so you can just you know whether you want to go chat up with them or not you can see that strong attention that's bringing people in and again it was white and they still came to look let's talk about the trials because i mean I, right. I i can imagine for you like in organizing the trials a, a group like formerly artists known as asters slash symphio <laughs> tricum has got to be like an undertaking but I'm even I mean, and talk about it. I'm about to bring up another plant that got its uh, change to uh, eutrochium from eupatorium. When you're organizing the trials of a plant group that is that big, like there's so many cultivated varieties on the market, how do you go about that? Just walk us through that. Like, you're like you're, how do you, do you come to the decision of what plant that you think is is worth trialing? And then how do you go through the process of sourcing? And there are so many cultivated varieties like that. Well, let me go way back to when I started here. And we, we conceived the idea of the comparative trials uh, for us. Obviously, uh, you know, Wisley's been doing it forever. Um, and our goal at the time, and certainly my hope, was to create these amazing collections and sort of just collect everything that's possible. You know, that's the sort of, uh, bot, you know, my, I'm a horticulturist, I love Bonnie, I love taxonomy, I wanted everything. But I learned, I mean, I realized fairly quickly, it, it's a temporary, it's a fleeting collection. You know, our, our average 
trial is four, just four years long. And it, you can't amass a collection like that. So I decided, well, then it makes sense to find everything that's commercially available. And it didn't take me long to figure out what I had to bring that even further in, what's readily commercially available. Because a lot of times you see it on the list and you never can find it. It's all, it's you know, perennially out of stock. So we finally honed it to that. So then once you get to that, we have to look at um, what, what does it need? You know, we have a very distinct uh, growing condition here. You know, we, we have a, a clay-based soil. The pH is average 7.4. I mean, we parts of the garden go up to 8.3, but in our trial garden, it's 7.4. There's absolutely no aspect of acidity there. Um, we're on a floodplain. I mean, we're, we're, the garden was, was uh, raised out of a swamp. Uh, to, to be fair. And so we're both on islands. It's, it's a man-made system for the most part. So you're dealing with all of that kind of stuff. You have to then sort of think, well, what is going to survive in that within reason? But our goal has always been to push it as far as we can. So if someone says it's zone six, and I think, well, you know, that probably will do well for us or could do well for us, I'll include it. So I'd limit to a point, but I don't just, you know, I don't just cut it off. Uh, absolutely. So some trials, but by the way, some trials I do have to cut off because I can't do 200 of something. I'm in the process right now of amassing our, our hellebore trial for 2022. And I've got 180 and my volunteer who's helping me out with it, I think she's added 20 more in the last couple of days. And so we have to draw, we have to draw a, a, a limit at some point. Is but, that, but is that one of the challenges, Richard? Because when you, you bring up hellebores, I mean, I have a ton of them here. And I, it feels like uh, like the Frost Kiss series. We've talked about this before on the podcast. Uh, has this uh, Rodney Davey and Devin, and there's some hellebores, Eric Smithy in there and all of this. But I can only imagine that job, Richard. It's like as soon as you're like, okay, this is a list. And then all of a sudden there's 30 that seem like they fall out of the sky from somebody else. It, it has, and it, I can imagine that can even be frustrating at times because then you hear about somebody who tells you, oh, well, this is one, this is the best one. And you're like, I'm yeah. already trialing 200. How could there be an, another one that's the best one? Well, I will always find room for the best one that, that someone I, I respect or I like, or I you know appreciate what they, what they know. I will always accept that extra one. I will always add it in. Yeah, there's, you have to set a limit. I, I think with hellebore, I mean, here's the, the tough part with hellebore. It's a brand new garden and it's, I could fill it with hellebores to be honest, because that's the way it works. Uh, um, that's the kind of space I have, but I obviously we have to have more than just hellebores. But yeah, limiting what we do can be a challenge. I would like to see everything. And I of course don't wanna leave the one out that I find out later was the one I should have had in, which is why I do. We do a lot of research. We we look into a lot. We talk to a lot of people. Ultimately, it does come down to what's available and what's readily available, easily available. But not just like you know stopping at a store picking up easy. I mean, we we do a lot of mail order ordering um, from all over the country. If we could do it around the world, we would um, just to bring in things that have sort of lost. Well, never were here. 
necessarily in the Chicago area, low, you know, commercially available locally, but things that have sort of lost that, that general uh, uh, sort of recognition. And, and, but yet still some mail orders, especially mail orders may hold on to it. Um, the other challenge, by the way, when you get to something like 200 hellebores, does what does that cost? And, you know, I, I'm looking at some hellebores right now that are in the 24 to 29 um, dollar price per plant. And I'm looking for 18 of each. Uh, yeah, it, it does. It, I have to, that, then I, that sometimes factors into it as well. Yeah. I, and I, I can, it really does feel, I want to get, cause we're on this topic and I know this gets touchy for people sometimes who are deep in the nursery industry with this and especially people that are introducing new varieties. But is there a point in your mind where enough is enough with some of the introductions where we get to too many, where it becomes too confusing almost in the marketplace because as there's people like yourself and myself who are like, I want to grow all of them. There are people that are, are casual gardeners, we'll call it Richard, and they right, want like right. a good hellebore, but they're like, I don't know what to do. It's like, I mean, the grocery store, there's three or four selections that can be confusing. And now right. we're like, oh, there's 200 brands of pasta to choose from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a great example. Yeah. Actually, here's it's. it's I'm going to I'm going to be honest, but obviously I could put myself out of business by saying stop giving us, you know, stop putting out new plants because we've had enough because that is partially what our trial does is we're looking at the new stuff. And obviously a lot of new stuff that's not necessarily comparable to uh, in a big trial, because beyond doing comparative trials like, you know, the asters or hellebores, we also look at a lot of, you know, you know, one-offs, things that, that don't necessarily connect to them, something else in our trial. But I will say that, yes, I think it's frustrating. I can only imagine what um, an average gardener, an average homeowner uh, who doesn't know, you know, doesn't know much or maybe knows a lot. And they're, they're presented with that, that, that huge array. I mean, in some, in some cases, I would think that's actually makes them giddy because look at all these opportunities. But in other cases, I say, which one should I get? You know, I and and the and and that's at that's at the final stage. The fact that we're bombarded with you know 15 new selections of coneflowers a year, you know, by X number of years, at some point, you know darn well that those are not all going to be available for long. So that's another aspect. Just to bring it back to the trial, that's another tough point about doing a trial trials like we do by the time a trial is finished some of those plants are just not available anymore yes they were brand new when i brought them in is and that's where like the trials that you do the trials that mount cuba does there's several yeah. places that um like i'll bring up one of your favorite plants that i've heard you reference in talks in the past which is eucra slash hookara that I, I purposely didn't bring that up. <laughs> that, <laughs> I said cornflower instead of hookah. Well, anyway. I, and I, I think it is one, you know, the, the breeding, um, I can understand. And we've had so many breeders on, um, we've talked about hookah before with some of them that, you know, it's exciting because there's, there's, there's color breaks and, and there's things that happen that, that are really, really beautiful plants without question. But, you know, so many of the ones is they, 
proliferated through the 80s and into the 90s and early 2000s and, and so on. Um, didn't have the the, the Eucharist Velosa parentage anywhere. So in the South, they were sort of meh for that reason. Then there were climates like yours up in Chicago where you're wet, cold winter. They weren't doing that either. <laughs> so you, yeah. had, you have this group of plants. But I know you have found some that you, you have been happy with. So I think that to me is the real value of like the work that that you do there at Chicago Botanical Garden Trials is that it can be um, an aid to people when the market is so saturated with so many of these things. Yeah, I, I agree. And that and that is actually the, the, the thing I point to all the time, which is, you know, we look at all these plants and even if there's just one plant out of all of those, you know, those, those, um, that whole trial that really did well, that's, that's a great discovery. And um, in the case of Hukra, that has been the case. I mean, I, I, I'm not aware, you know, necessarily personally. I mean, I, I hear it. I've talked to people. What exactly went into the breeding of all these over the, uh, the, over the, the course of the last 30 years? But, you know, if you're not using species that are relevant for me, like you mentioned, Velosa for you guys, they're not going to do well for us. And so I, I'm actually kind of excited by the breeding that's happening in the Midwest. I don't like to just feel, I sometimes don't like to feel we're just in the Midwest. I'd like to branch it further, branch out further. But the fact of the matter is, those are something bred here is probably going to do better for us. I will say also, I've had the the, the great fortune of, of, of working with Jim all, all these years, watching him breed plants. I mean, he is like a kid in a candy store. I mean, he's giddy as a schoolgirl, watching all these things that that he's discovered and found and all these little nuances. But what I love about Jim is that he doesn't he doesn't want to market every one of those. He wants to find one that's really unique and special and is going to add something, not just be another something. And so I've watched that. So I do understand. I totally understand every one of those hookahs that someone said, gosh, that's beautiful. Let's do something with it. I understand that, that concept, but I don't know that that has done the, the gardening world a great service, to be honest. I mean, ultimately the ones that shake out, that's a great thing. I will say also just an aside, since we're on hookah, that was the, the, the genus that started the trials we do right now. That was the be very beginning. That's the the first plant group where we said, there are so many coming out. What the heck? You know, we can't make guts or tails of it. How is an average gardener going to understand this? So that's actually all the work we've done since has been based on that initial concept. And now not all, not all plant groups move very well or fast, but one that does move fast, I think that's the perfect opportunity for a, a, a trial. I think that's why you should do a trial. So when you made that decision, let, let's use them as uh, a bit of the, the blueprint for it. So when you decided that, it was because there were there was there were seven thousand coming out with the name Peach attached to them, and yeah. then you're what is the the evaluation? What are you looking for? I mean, obviously it goes beyond just cold hardiness. You're talking about performance. What are the attributes that you're looking at for any plant? But even just using that as maybe the the framework. So we, so every plant that we bring in, we look at the same way. Um, 
but every plant, every plant group that we trial isn't necessarily there for the same reason. So, but they're all based within, um, and, and they're looked at within a four broad criteria. So the first one and the most important one, I think, is cultural adaptability to the conditions we're putting it in. So in our case, um, currently, it's a full sun garden. There's a, it's wind exposure in all directions, but you know, mostly from the prevailing westerly winds, uh, you know, uh, clay, a clay-based soil can drain, might not drain, you know, in two, day, two different days. Um, deer pressure, rabbit pressure, all that kind of stuff, all the things that involved in that site, because it doesn't matter how much you want that plant, it doesn't matter how pretty it is, if you can't grow it, it's it's not really worth uh, looking at. So that's the first and I think the most important criterion. The second is um, disease and pest issues. We're always monitoring what is the problem on the plant or or hopefully no problem. Uh, third is winter hardiness, which is um, not as not as significant as it was when I first started at the garden at the garden. When I first started, I would say that. There was a very small, um, very, you know, little beginning of a trial program here, um, but just internal. It was all meant to funnel plants from our, our small trial garden into our display garden because we were really building uh, in the mid 80s. We we're adding gardens all the time. And so it was meant to be that. Well, to be honest, if it was if it was hardy, it was a good plant. It was that was pretty much the, the only criterion. Um, or the main criterion, I should say. Uh, if it lived, it was great. So, but winter hardiness still plays a part. I mean, part of it is it's all tied in with the climate uh, issue and, uh, you know, the warming and, and all of that kind of, and the, these horrible winters and then a perfect winter and then a, you know, southern winter, uh, whatever we have going on. So part of it does factor into that. So it's not just about cold hardiness, but it's about sort of um, survivability in the winter. You know, we have freezing thawing because some years we don't have any snow. Some years, like this year, we have three feet of snow. Um, so you have all of those aspects of winter all are tied together. And then, of course, the fourth criterion is what does it look like? You know, we're looking at its foliage, its flowers, its plant habit, you know, its growth rate, its growth habit. It's, um, you know, what, what, why do you want the plant? Why is this a beautiful plant? Um, why should people be interested in the plant? So those are the main ones, but sometimes we, we bring a, a trial in, like for instance, uh, Phlox paniculata. It, we brought that in primarily just for disease issue, just to look at the powdery mildew issue. Now, obviously it, it's looked at for all those things I just mentioned, but that was the prime reason it was here. Some, some things like gentians, when we did gentians, that was really about cultural adaptability. And then also a little bit about uh, winter hardiness. So they kind of overlap, but mostly it was about adaptability. I mean, were they going to survive on in those dreadful soils, you know? And so things like, so that's kind of, but those are the four main, four main criteria we're, we're always looking at. Are you hopeful in seeing some, because you've been doing this longer than many people have been, as far as the trials go in this kind of, you know, more comprehensive way that we're starting to see them in other regions of the United States is clearly uh, one thing, you know, in all of the Northern European gardens, it's great. We all love them, but the difference 
in climate in the United States versus over there is drastic. You know, we were talking right. difference between Tennessee and Chicago, massive that we're starting to see places like Mount Cuba do trials, develop them where it can both take this global performance element of the trial, but it can also right. speak to the regionality of them as well. No, that's true. I, I have probably over the last 35 years, I probably talked to a dozen gardens who were talking about um, starting a trial garden. They wanted my uh, input and my, in my uh, advice. And some, some started, some, some didn't go very far. Some didn't start at all. Mount Cuba actually did it. They actually instituted a program and it's a great program and it's, um, and, and it's great to see, but it's it's really the only we're really kind of the only two um and the same you know that are in the same model now there are other ones colorado has a great there's a lot a lot of them are annual based which ours is not nor is mount cuba's uh they have the focus of course of their region they're looking for you know they're looking a lot at what's what's in the piedmont area um we're we're just looking at anything that's going to survive here um but i do think that uh the idea of uh, network across the country is it's it's time is long overdue. Now the All America Selections and the Perennial Plant Association did did partner up a few years ago. 2016, I think, is when we initiated the trial uh, for their herbaceous perennial program. And the idea there is it's based on the All America Selections for annuals and vegetables. Uh, it's a countrywide uh, program and. Um, they're looking at plants that, you know, maybe they're going to only be good in one region, but we're looking at them all over the country. That's the closest this country's ever gotten to a, a fairly broad um, uh, evaluation trial scheme. Um, the the downside to it is it's 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 based on what what pe how people want to buy into it. So it it's not a robust <clears throat> excuse me it's not a robust program. It's not like you know, they're, they're talking in, you know, single digit plants every year versus, you know, our trial, which we, we average, um, you know, a thousand uh, taxa a year in our trial. Uh, but I do think I, I, I am very happy. I was very happy when Mount Cuba jumped in both feet and just took off because I would and I hope other gardens will, too. Uh, Dell down in, um, in Kentucky is talking about it. They, you know, we're, we're, we're talking with them. They're, I think they're eager to get it started this year. Uh, they actually, I should say they started it last year. Uh, they started the garden. I think this year is their, their goal is to get it filled and, and the trial is actually underway. And how difficult so I, is it to stay independent in that? Is, is that is more, uh, to stay independent in it? Because it is one of the things that we've seen, and we, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, there's this balance sometimes between the commerce of plants and the gardening of plants and the, the marketing component versus the performance component that, you know, we have plants that hit the market and they're called the blah, blah, blah of the year by a guy named Frank down on the corner who owns a, a small, you know, fruit stand, Richard. And yet it's, I have to imagine for you, you know, that's, that's important that people know that when they see the trials there, that they are independent, you're evaluating with any kind of, there's there's not that pressure to be like, yeah. hey, our plant is the best, isn't it? Kind of thing. 
<laughs> no, I, I totally agree. I mean, that is one thing that I'm very proud of I, from the very beginning. And it was never an issue, not here, not at the garden. You know, Chicago Botanic Garden never, never looked at it any other way than I did. We want to be impartial. We want to be objective. The whole program is set up to be objective. Of course, we're horticulturists. We're subjective by nature. I mean, we have an we have an opinion on an opinion, on our own opinion, in fact. So we you can't you you got to keep that out of it. But yet that has to funnel into it to to inform how what you think about the plant and what you know about the plant. But ultimately, it is the objectivity that I'm the most proud of. That I can say with certainty. I never did, I never gave any, any um, uh, rating or positive performance or negative for that matter to a plant because of who originated it. I mean, if it's not a good plant, it's not a good plant. If it's a good plant, it's a good plant. Now, here's the thing. If you look at a lot of what I've done, you'll see a lot of the plants might fit into one person's world. I mean, there's a lot of Hans Hansen's plants at Walter's Gardens that are phenomenal. Brent Horvath, uh, you know, at Trinsic Perennial. These are good. These are good plant breeders. They're they're putting out good plants, and they're and they're giving me those plants. So these are plants that you know I I end up. So it may look like I'm you know working with Hans you know on some special thing, but it just happens to be there's a lot of his stuff out there, and he's done a lot of great stuff, and Brent as well. You know, even Terra Nova, which, you know, always gets the bad rap. They're, they're the poster child for things. They've got some amazing plants. I mean, breeding has come a long, long way. I think they're, you know, there's a ways to go on a lot of things and everybody, you know, it's, I think, on everybody's plate. But I do think there's some great, uh, you know, great plants coming out of there that work for us. I mean, I think there's great plants that come out of there that work somewhere else. But for the Kismet series of coneflowers, I mean, they're phenomenal. They're just, they're phenomenal plants for us. So, you know, that's how I look at it. I, I want to work with these people. They're my friends or my colleagues, but I'm not going to just say, I'm not going to say, oh, well, you know, Hans gave that to me. I'm going to give it a good mark. Well, and uh, that's definitely not the way it works. Everybody you just mentioned, friends of the show. And I think what we've also seen is we're getting people, and Brent's a, a great example of this of someone who's really embraced a lot of regional plants from the, the the prairies of the upper Midwest, all of that. And Hans is another person where I think we're just seeing more thoughtful breeding. Yeah. If that's such a thing, Richard, that, you it know, is, it's it not just commercial appeal exclusively. It's place of origin, regionality, what's on the marketplace, where's the market weak, what are plants in some ways, and you and I are going to get to this conversation, that people should see more, but we're, yeah. we're not. And I feel like all of those, those people are, are, are really headed in that direction. And people like yourself and myself and everybody, we're just the, the beneficiaries of that work. Well, I do think it, what, what we want and what we, um, what we want, and I guess what we think we want, is what we see. And so, what's out in the marketplace, you know, is is what we're looking at, and 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 um, and that's large in a large lot of cases, in a large large amount of cases, it's what those breeders are giving us. I do think the the you know Hans, I do think that uh, Brent, Jim Alt, I've said Jim for years. I've, I I always I always um, 
comment on Jim to people as a very thoughtful breeder. He's, he's, you know, he, we joke about him. He could take two plants and just shake them together and see what he gets. And that's not a bad way to breed, but he's, he, I mean, I've, I, I, he's the only plant breeder I've worked with uh, on a regular basis. I mean, the, the, the amount of background work that he does to figure out what might be, what might not be is amazing. And I, I think that other breeders do the same thing. I think it gets back to what we talked about earlier. It's about what plants they're using. Brent does use a lot of natives. He uses a lot of things that he knows works well here. He's, he's from here. He gets that. You know, Hans is the same way. He, he's from the Midwest. He understands that. But he also, under, I mean, he's an encyclopedia. I mean, he understands plants from everywhere. I mean, look at his mangavis. So I, 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 you know, by that way, you know, bringing in Tony Avent as well all sort of very local regional breeders, but expanded well beyond that, certainly. Uh, but I do think that um, with more thoughtful breeding, we won't have that 7,000 of a very similar thing that just fails. I still, I still question how many of anything we need. And if we're doing ourselves a disservice by, um, you know, by putting out so many at the same time. I mean, we, we do that here all the time. Jim and I've had a million conversations about how many new cultivars of one plant are too many at once. But then there's the pressure of, well, if he doesn't do it right now, will someone else do it for him? You know, are they working on it? Are they going to do it for him? And, and I do think that's probably a pressure with the bigger companies. It's just, I, I think that's probably a, a pressure they get. You know, you have to put out X number of things. That's why we've employed you. Well, well and I, I was on a conference the other day, uh, International Plant Propagator Society uh, for the Eastern region with Tim Brotsman, who is right. easily, you know, the, the foremost expert in probably the world now on hamamelis. And here's a right. plant, Richard, that for forever, right? There's, there's varieties, but it's never had mass market appeal of any kind. And I think that's always the balance of these things is, you know, how do you find these, the plants that we all love that we think are really interesting, but like you just explained, it's like, well, companies have to pay bills and keep the lights on. And as you know, virtuous as some of these things are, it's hard with some of these, these plants. And you know, along those same lines, I've got to imagine, you know, over the years and doing the trial, there's probably plants like that, that you've trialed, that you loved, uh, you thought were great, but yet the market didn't really embrace them, that the market just sort of was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, but you thought they were plants that really had, had something going for them. Well, you know, what's what, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, definitely. If, if- seen a lot of those. I'd look at it in a, in a couple of ways. I mean, there's regional, uh, you know, it's something that's, that's not, not um, caught on regionally, you know, around, around my area versus something that's not caught on um, uh, nationally um, of plants that we've looked at. Like I said, we've looked at a lot of plants over the years. I, I think what I would say in general to that, that thought is that, um, a lot of the plants that I really love that I've promoted over the years oftentimes just end up not being available anymore. 
And I don't know why. I just assume they've been pushed out by something newer. That's the most frustrating thing to me, where it's like, you know, this is an amazing plant. Why isn't this more available? Uh, or why is it gone? Why, you know, who has it? You know, is it, is it in the back 40 somewhere? Uh, you know, one little part of the country gets the benefit from, from it. But, you know, to, to go to um, uh, Hookerus, back to Hookerus, you know, one of my favorite Hookerus, because it survived and it thrived and it was absolutely, you know, spectacular, was Color Dream, which I don't even remember now whose that was. It was I don't think it was a Terranova. And I, I pushed that thing right and left and nobody cared. Nobody cared because, I mean, why would they? There's 7,000 others they probably saw that enticed them more. Uh, um, geranium, which this has to be, there's a couple that are success stories. Uh, geranium Blue Sunrise, which is a Blooms of Bressingham, which is now uh, what, must have perennials. Uh, their introduction, which with the gold, you know, the golden yellow leaves and the blue flowers, beautiful plant. It did spectacularly in our trial. We brought it in from Europe. We had a collecting trip around the 2000s where we were bringing these plants in by, we went over to Europe bought plants in European garden centers and, and brought them back. And so we, we grew that, we really loved it. And I started promoting it. Well, Bloom's dropped it, dropped it everywhere. Well, so I, talk, I talked about it for years, wrote it up, our write-up brought it back. So they reintroduced it because they said, what, you liked it, it did well? So it can work. So there's those small little victories like that. But um, I, I, another one that comes to mind that I don't know if it's even available anywhere anymore is a, um, and I think this might be Brent Horvath's. Um, sometimes I get, there's so many. I, like, I think that was Brent. It's a digitalis, uh, uh, Pensum and Digitalis called Precious Gem, um, which is not purple. Not, it doesn't have purple leaves. So I think that's part of what happened. It's one of the most floriferous. It's a nice compact habit, you know, uh, beautiful plant. I just can't find that anymore at all. And, I've, and here's the thing. I talk about these plants everywhere. And that's the one question I get. Well, I can't find these. And then I look into it and it's like, I can't find these. And so then I have to say, do I take that off my list of things to talk about? Or I just keep pushing it so that people will um, ask for it and do something about it. Uh, it's not quite in the same vein, but another kind of, you know, a sort of similar vein is uh, Salvia Little Night, which is a Salvia Sylvestris type Little Night. It's a high country gardens introduction. Uh, probably one of the very best um, Salvia, you know, the wood sage cultivars I've ever grown. And I've grown a lot of those. Uh, it's a very compact plant. It stays compact. It never opens. There's none of that donut holing. Uh, it blooms maybe a couple weeks later than, starts blooming a couple weeks later than most other ones. So it, it takes it a little farther into the summer. It, it's just a phenomenal plant. Well, they're the only ones who sell it. So every time someone comes to the garden who's a, who's a grower, who's a, you know, has a nursery, I take them to that plant and I just keep pushing and pushing. And finally, uh, when PPA, you know, Perennial Plant Association was here a couple of years ago, I think that was just a couple of years ago, <laughs> COVID has 
whacked out my uh, timeline. Everyone's timeline. Um, we're all going through some Avengers movie where all temporal displacement has happened, Richard, over the yeah. last uh, 18 I mean, months. I, I didn't count my birthday last year. I'm one year younger because I'm not counting it for that reason. But I, so there, I, you know, I, I pointed it out to, you know, Paul Westervelt at uh, Saunders Brothers and Shannon Curry at Hoffman. I pointed it out to them. I said, is there something, you know, something you guys, is this something you guys would be interested in? Would you push it? So Paul actually looked into it and I hooked him up with, you know, David Solomon at High Country Gardens. And, and it was very intriguing. Well, it turns out Mon- uh, Monrovia's had the plan. They've just done nothing with it. But I think that spurred them into now, I think they're going to finally do something with it, which will bring it out to a broader audience, which is what, what it deserves. It's a phenomenal plant. So I, that's kind of when I think of the plants that kind of got away. That's what I think about those ones that people know, but where'd they go? And why aren't they? Why aren't they here? It is, you know, I mean, you're because of your independence in your position, I, I think this is a topic that we, we've we've had the conversation a lot. Um, this issue of what's dictating the future of plants. And sadly, as people have heard me rant about on every social media platform and here on the podcast, we've had readers on the podcast talk about rack heights yes. being delivered to big box stores being a really major factor in what they're breeding. And, yeah. you know, you, you bring up like color dream. I found the plant. It did great for you. It did great at Mount Cuba. But I'll tell you from somebody who goes over probably 50 availability lists on every Monday, uh, I found one place that had it in production. And how much does that concern you? Right. Because, because you're, you're putting in the work, you're putting in the trial, you have a team there that you guys are looking for these good plants, but yet now what we see happening in the market is places that are concerned about rack heights, Richard, are what are determining what's coming on to the garden market. And the sad part about that is it's not going to be on the rack all summer. Why does it have to only be 12 inches, period? That's the part that I don't understand. I cannot tell you how many times, honestly, how many times I've said, I'm not a fan of miniaturizing every plant because that is what's happened. We're miniaturizing. I don't want to get on my hands and knees to look at a Menard. Menardus should look you in the eye. Eupatoriums too. Look, I want to be able to see that at eye level. I don't want to get down on the ground. I mean, I, I will say the Menardus that are, you know, a foot tall or foot and a half tall, beautiful flowers. Every one is gorgeous, but I don't, I just don't, I don't think that's a silly thing to just focus so much on that. And then suddenly you've just displaced the whole Menarda market with this minute, these miniatures. I mean, who, who has a garden that just wants plants with no scale? So, um, and I don't mean the insect. Uh, you know, I mean, we we want to, so I, it, it does frustrate me. And I, I know, you know, we all know Stephanie Cohen and she's the, you know, she's always talked about the, uh, you know, the, the short size and all that kind of stuff. I will agree. If you're Stephanie size, that's a great thing. I'm 6'2". I'd like to see something that, that's 6'2", that is 6'2", and not a foot and a half. Um, so yeah, it, it does frustrate me, but of course I'm just one, I'm just one, um, one person, but the fact of the matter is, is when I'm recommending plants, if I don't think it's, if I don't think it did well, or it, it, 
kind of turns me off. The fact of the matter is I might not talk about it, even if it did well. I'll report on it and I'll, you know, make sure it gets its due, but I may never talk about it. Ultimately, that's where it does come in to my choice. And I just like to see, a, I just don't think, and I just don't think that that's right. I mean, there are a lot of, I, I do get that, but I, it, it just, it sort of troubles me that, that that feels like manufacturing. You know, it just feels like manufacturing to me. It doesn't feel, it sort of lost the spirit of what plants are and gardens are and gardening is because it, and then here's the other side that just disturbs me to my core is you go to those big box stores they don't even bother to unload the racks. The plants die in place. They look like hell because they're still growing right in up to the, it, it's a nutty, it's a nutty concept. I understand it, by the way. It's not like I don't get it, but I don't, I don't like it. Same. I, I don't think, Same. I just don't think it's good. And, and the, the argument that I have made um, and recently and started writing about some of these things that the great gardens of the world aren't using plants yeah. that are measured at 24 inches and all look yeah. like green meatball plants. Yeah. And you, you know, you mentioned something like Eupatorium and there's a plant that would never meet the, the needs of, of a, yeah. a rack height <laughs> at a big yeah. box store. And I, I wanted to get your opinion on that group a little bit. Um, I know like polished brass was a, a an introduction that Brent Horvath had also. Um, Love it great plant but again it's one of those that feels like is that what's limiting the fact that it isn't a, a, a cute little 18 inch look at me i can go in front of a grocery store in spring for six weeks and be sold kind of plant i think you hit it on the head that is exactly what will happen which is unfortunate i mean polished polished brass is an amazing plant um uh just a, a quick side story on that so in 2019, Fergus Garrett from Great Dixter was visiting, and we're, we're talking at the entrance to the garden, and I just keep seeing him sort of glance to the right, and, he's, and I'm thinking, well, you know, what's coming? What, what, what's he get? He's got his eye on that plant. It's across the garden. It's he, he beeline for it. He loved that plant. I mean, it was one of those things where this is a gardener. This is someone who understands what that plant brings and not that it's, you know, 18 inches tall. I'm not sure that he ever commented on any plant that was so short that normally should be tall. But I do think that that does affect it. I, I don't, rem I'm drawing a complete and utter blank on the, 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 the dwarf um, eupatorium that's out right now. Uh, and I don't want to disparage it, you know, unfairly, but I look at that, which is by the way, right next to, um, uh, polished brass. I mean, it's, it's night and day. I mean, I, I don't, I didn't want to look at it. It's not interesting. It's not, it's not, a, it's just nothing about it. And it's, but first of all, it's not doing well in the trial. So I got to give it, I got to give it that, but it, it just doesn't, I look at the two, but again, I got to be objective. I have to, I have to look at each of those on its own merits, but I am predisposed to want to see the large one. I mean that when polished brass is in bloom, it is just solid white. It's, and it's one of the best pollinator magnets I've ever seen. But just one quick, one other quick story, which I think kind of kind of is in vain with this. Years ago, when Jim Walt was breeding Baptisias, you know, and he was really, really starting the process, we had, we done, you know, he was looking at color breaks and, and all that, you know, size, obviously everyone wants to bring them down in size. And so he had probably 
three or four that he was really interested in. And, and pretty much a consensus. We had nursery, local nursery people in and they looked at it and there was pretty much a consensus that this uh, three or four were really were the ones to go with. Well, Pete Udolph visited and, you know, Roy Diblick brought him by. We, we took him out to that trial, which by that, by the breeding at that point was behind the scenes. He walked right past every single one of those and walked to what became Midnight, Prairie, Prairie Blues Midnight or Midnight Prairie Blues. Um, he walked to that and he said, this is the best thing out here. He didn't even see the other stuff. And we're like, what? He said, this is a gardener's plant. The rest of those are for landscapes. This is a gardener's plant. And, and you know, we, we then we stood back. We had we had recognized it, but we didn't we didn't like it wasn't on the list. So it was like, oh, interesting. What's well, a phenomenal plant? But it does take a little time. It doesn't bulk out quickly like the other other ones we selected uh, do. And they're all great plants. And they you know, they've been they persist forever. But that one took, so it takes a little bit longer. But the stature of it, it's just a gorgeous plant. But that's the kind of thing everybody views plants differently, which is why I love to have visitors who come and see something. They, they often see something I don't see. Or I'd love to have an intern who doesn't really know much about plants at all because they really see stuff I don't see. Um, they're not, I always say they're not as jaded as I am. And I, I think, I'm not sure they really understand the depth of what that means. But um, yeah, so I, I do, I do, um, I do think that uh, uh, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. To look at plants. Well, in Baptisia, I feel like they're a great example of of a couple of things. That first, they 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 didn't get their due forever. Yeah. <laughs> they were just yeah. out out there sitting in the world. Nobody wanted to deal with it. It was too slow in a container. It never presented very well. It has these two or three weak stems when the plants, you know, three years old, yeah, popping out forever. Yeah, and, and you were just staring at it, going one day. But what I always found interesting about it is that you could really make the same argument for peonies. The peonies, performance-wise, are very comparable. It takes them many years to really establish and and show you this incredible display. But yet, the flower, I guess, is so much more gaudy, so much more iconic that it just, the popularity is nowhere close. But yet, you've brought up Two people, Richard, who were attracted to two plants, one in, in Pete Aldoff and one in Fergus Garrett, where if you were going to say, is there, a, you know, garden royalty of the moment of the yeah, last yeah. 20 years, both of yeah. them are clearly on it. But yet what we see is they're attracted to those plants. They're, they're yeah. not attracted to those things. Do, do you think the... And I'm going to use a finger quote here, kids. The industry has done enough to promote that kind of thinking. I'm not sure that that is a a factor in in any of it in the industry. I mean, it's certain people, yes, but I think generally it, it, it's sort of, it feels like the whole industry is big boxed. You know what I mean? It's like, why would you want to go outside of that? Why would you care if it's a gardener's plant? Now, there's certainly plenty of nurseries in the country who do think that. But I think a lot of a lot of people we produce for the masses rather than for the, you know, uh, 
gardeners, real gardeners. I mean, and, and you, you actually have to look at our municipal and our, our commercial landscapes to see that. It, it's like everything in a row, every little round balls, don't touch, whatever you do. I do, I do, I do wonder sometimes if if that if that is what's happening. Um, I, I, but it's it's in a you know it's a it's a much different gardening world by the way than when I when I first started in horticulture. I mean it's it's much much different. Now when we were doing the baptizia thing, just an aside, there was a lo- there's a local nurseryman, incredibly well respected. Um, the only thing I'm going to say related to his name, he also loves peonies. Anyway, he he came to the, the Baptizia thing and he said, nobody wants a Baptizia that's not blue. This is just dumb. And I, I think we proved that wrong. Um, and I think that helped. To be honest, I love a good blue um, Baptizia if you can find one. I mean, I, I bought, I have a, a postage stamp size garden. You know, the whole, my whole backyard, which is a garden, is only 30 by 30 feet. And I wanted a Baptizia, so I bought one. It was the dullest, crappiest looking blue I've ever seen. I was like, well, I can't give that there. So everyone wants a blue, but what is that blue? What is that, you know, what is that blue that's so beautiful? This is, you know, back in the 90s um, and early 2000s. So I do think those colors made it, more exciting for people uh, because it it I think uh, first of all I do think anytime you enhance the color that does draw other people in coneflowers are a perfect example as well but I do think it I think with baptizia there's a couple of things that don't work for it the flower is fleeting but in your example so is a peony flower they don't look well at a garden center they they do fit in the rack thing <laughs> because it's just a pot, but who's going to buy that? Even with a picture, they may not buy it. Um, and I think for a long time, it just got brushed as a, you know, sort of um, brushed with the idea it was a native and it wasn't, you know, wasn't necessarily a good garden plant kind of thing. I don't know. Um, but I do think that it's the market for that has improved, but will it ever catch up to something like a peony? I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm constantly reminded by people who know marketing that women are still the major garden you know, component. So maybe they just prefer something like a peony to a, I don't know. Here's where I think everyone's wrong. And everybody that follows me knows this. I think the industry has been wrong for a long time. I think we dumb things down too much. I think people that are hungry, the people that go to a big box store on a weekend just to, to do it because that's what you do. I think they buy regardless of what's there. I I think those are just hungry people that eat. I think the group that we've been neglecting is getting people to the next place. How do you get people who have a little bit of interest who maybe go, huh, maybe there's something to this whole gardening, planty, thingy, worldy. And we've never given given them a consistent place to graduate to. And what I've seen in being really vocal and visible in what I've been doing in the last two years is there are a lot of people, you know, we're, we're selling plants now on the website and some of the things I'm selling, Richard, I'm super stoked about like, like things that you wouldn't have historically thought of. Um, and I, I think that that place is there to build those things. And you mentioned 
how it's changed. And I wanted to talk about your career a little bit. And in doing this for so long, what would have been changes? I mean, has that been one of them? Clearly, you know, the, the you've seen literally in your career, the, the growth of the big box stores and the impact. I mean, when you started, was that what it probably wasn't really a factor? Because I mean, those, especially the two largest of those two didn't really grow up until the, the 90s and upwards. Right. Yeah. What, when I, when I first started, I mean, I, I came here and um, as a staff member in 1985, I'd been an intern here before that, but I came here in 1985. I mean, there were no box stores, big box stores. There, there was nothing like that. I mean, the garden centers were local mail order. Wasn't even all that, uh, or they were, you know, the, the, the major ones, you know, white far farm, uh, wayside, things like that. But, you know, a lot of the specialty ones, really well because you had to get a catalog you know so you had somehow you had to connect that a dot or whatever so i do think but i mean in my in my career i've seen that explosion um of all the all those major groups i mean you know coneflowers hookera baptisia obviously at a smaller level but it has been an explosion clocks i mean all of these that have just as as this um and I don't know, it's just big box, but as the, as the industry has grown and it's obviously become a big industry, the exploitation of all those different plant groups just to bring us something new every year. Um, you know, I, I used to say at the beginning when I first started, you know, I mean, I, I, I would look back at it because at the time I didn't know any different, but uh, any differently. But um, so looking back on it, it was like in those early days, if you got a, a nursery catalog and it had three, you know, new things for this year, they didn't necessarily mean brand new. They just meant new to them, or maybe they were brand new. Now it's like a whole page or two pages of new stuff. That's a lot of it is brand new uh, and or, or new to them. And I always think it's like, you know, you go to a grocery store, you get back to your pasta comments, like how, how much room will a grocery store commit to pasta? Well, it's the same thing in a garden center. How much room can they give to a coneflower? I mean, can they put 16, 20, 30? I mean, I, I evaluate 150 or 160 coneflowers. Um, and that wasn't even what's everything that's out there. So, I mean, how much, how much is too much? Um, so I've definitely seen that. Um, there is greater, I mean, one of the positive things that I've seen, you know, there's greater visibility, more mail orders. Unfortunately, that's now sliding back down again. So availability to things that I never thought I would ever get for the trial uh, is is great. Um, it, yeah, it's it's definitely the 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 gardening world has changed. Well, I don't know the the industry has changed a lot over the years. Uh, I'm not sure I have a a great handle on what the gardening world's about. I really don't. I, I've been sort of um, excited in the last couple of years listening to you know, lectures and, and people talking about how, you know, especially last year during, you know, the whole pandemic thing. Well, last year's part of the pandemic that, you know, people were more interested in gardening, more younger people, everybody's more interested. I love that. I mean, I, I, it doesn't matter to me what they're growing. Um, I, I, I'm just glad to see that. And I think that will keep the, the industry growing. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a completely different beast now than it was in, in the mid 80s. Well, and it almost feels like a tale of two cities kind of moment, Richard. 
it's like the best of times, worst of times. Because from my perspective, yeah. from a real plant-driven analysis of it, it's incredible. Like you said, yeah. there, there's so many plants. There's great varieties. I mean, you have people like Brent doing incredible work with, with you know, he's got a Monarda, Redburniana, that he introduced, right? Yeah. Like we're seeing these very micro um, investigations into plants and species that we, we weren't seeing before. But yeah. yet... It doesn't feel like, I think P. Allen Smith said this on the podcast uh, not too long ago, that when we drive around just in neighborhoods, we're still not seeing it. Like we're not seeing it. We're still seeing the same very traditional Americana, socially distanced plants that we've been seeing for, you know, 40, 50 years. And again, you know, I think as we, we swing it positively here, do you think we've had in this last year? Uh, people say there is more interest and there's economics that prove that. Although I talked about the other day, some of those economics go back to the big box stores. You can look at their Q2 annually reports and, and see their growth from last year. You want to see where a lot right. of the money went. But um, the ecology combining with gardening and horticulture in maybe a little bit less of an adverse way. And people saying, you know, it's not just about natives. It's about gardening. And if we have great natives to choose from, all the better. Do you, do you think that is something that maybe can elevate the conversation some moving forward for people that are new to it? I, I do, actually. I was going to say that earlier. Um, but I think that the way the way there certain people are looking at plants and gardening and talking about it, that is... It, it's definitely changed. I mean, people like Kelly Norris, I mean, he can talk about a plant that everyone has seen somewhere and, and just pull it all together and, and push that. I mean, Brie Arthur with, with all of the, you know, the, the way she looks at plants, uh, you know, Pete Udolph. I mean, these people who are not just talking about the plant, they're talking about the community that, and they're not just talking about design either. It's all about everything connected uh, you know, Roy Dibley, if you ever listen to Roy Dibley, anyone's ever listened to Roy Dibley, I mean, you can't, you can't walk away and, and, and not have figured out that he's not just talking about height and width and flower color. So I do think the way people like that, and there's plenty more who, the way they talk about the plant and its interaction and its community and where all of that, I think that is where, that's the hope I see. I think it isn't just about um, it isn't, I mean, it isn't just about, uh, selling a plant. It's about, you know, getting people to be sort of, uh, connected to the plant and those backstories that, you know, all that kind of stuff, hopefully that gets people excited beyond just the fact that it has red flowers and it's two feet tall or five feet tall or whatever. So I do think that is, I think that's a, a plus. I've been uh, listening to a lot of people talk in the last two to three years and I realized they're not just giving plant talks, they're really going far beyond that. And a lot of times it's their theory or their philosophy, but it, it's, it's broader than just a plant talk. And I, and I think that that is, I think that's important. And I think that's the, that may be what gets people more into it. I mean, they, I, I understand from marketers that, you know, and they talk, I've ta- listened to talks where they talk about, you know, signage and things like that at, at garden centers. 
you know, that millennials, you know, often malign millennials, I don't even know what age group that is, but the often malign millennial that they don't want to just see the litany of what a plant is, you know, what it is, they want to know what it does, what it, what it brings. And so they're, they're simplifying labels and, and they're looking at things so that these people understand more the intrinsic value of that plant, other than just the fact that it's, you know, in full sun and, you know, two feet tall and in flowers for four months or whatever. So I think that that, I think that's all good. I think that's all, that's all good for the industry. I'm going to pick up. And I like to look at a lot of broad, I like to look at everything so that hopefully those plants can funnel into that philosophy and that way of looking at it. I'm not necessarily connecting those dots for everybody, but hopefully people who, who see what we're doing will, can take those plants and fit that into, into, into that reality. I think that's a really good point. And, and, I, and I feel like I'm going to pick on a plant here. Um, and for all of you that follow me on Instagram, you are part of that poll. And you're going to think about this when you hear me say this. And you're going to be like, did he just shame me? I think he just shamed me. <laughs> so I was listening to a talk that you did, Richard, with uh, Helianthus uh, salicifolius, autumn gold. And I had seen this plant out there in the world. And I, I saw you talk about it. And I was super impressed by the plant. I mean, just uh, literally to the point, I mean, it's covered with flowers to, to a level that was just unreal. Yeah. Like you were like, okay, did somebody get out, you know, the hot glue gun? But then I did a poll of, did people like the plant? And historically yellow struggles. And this yeah. was another yeah. example of yellow struggles. And I think it was like a 51, 49. We love it. We don't like it poll. And is that part of it that where people don't see them in context and yellow and a plant like autumn gold to me maybe represents that, that to people that are, are looking at plant as a singular headshot and we're not putting it in the context of a garden setting that they're just like, meh, is that part of it? That we have to contextualize these plants and it's hard people just from a media content perspective. I'll tell you, it's hard. Because now it's like every single plant has to go into this garden setting kind of vibe. And it's it's a lot. It's more production content creation than, than people would realize. But do you think maybe that's part of it? Just telling people that story of the plant in association with other plants in a garden context more so. It definitely is. I mean, that is certainly the, the thing. And, and if you can do that uh, verbally, that's great. But if you can do it you know, as using an image, I think that makes a big difference. That's the down, there's two downsides to what we do in the trial. Number one, it's not a landscape setting. So a lot of the pictures we use are not landscape. Number two, some of them, who has them? What landscape are they in? So you couldn't get the, couldn't get it anyway. I would totally agree. I mean, here's the thing. I, every time I just get, I just taught a class here yesterday at the garden and I had, cause I'm, I'm also, you know, sort of, anal retentive. So I do a lot of alphabetizing. I, I don't, it's just a simple thing. It's orderly. I can find an H where an H belongs. So yesterday I noticed, and I actually had a like, uh, I think my stomach might've turned over a little bit. I had Helianthus folius autumn gold followed up by Heliopsis venus. So, and I was like, two yellows in a row. What are you thinking? And because they're Asia, they follow each other. So it made sense to what I was doing. But even I had that sort of, oh, 
I mean, is that, so I do get that. I totally get that. And I do think though, uh, going back to your original point, putting that plant in context of a greater picture has got to help. I think has got to help. Um, it might be tough too. And I actually go against my own sort of theory. I mean, uh, Helianthus foliage is a big plant. I love it. This is not a big plant. Autumn gold is a small plant. It's, it's, it's a very compact plant, but I was so blown away by that color, um, that, that, that color view of it that I, I, I have to talk about it. I mean, it's, it's a phenomenal plant, but it is, a, it is a small, a big plant that's been turned into a meatball. And that's also maybe part of the problem. Suddenly, what do I do with this meatball? Looks good at a shell station, but with one of those, you know, red dwarf minorities. But what do I do with it? So I do. I agree completely with your with your talk. But then just one other quick quick comment uh, about yellow or gold or whatever. So I I said a few years ago, if I if I never see another Rudbeckia goldsturm looking plant, I'll be happy. I don't ever need to see one. Well, then Rebecca American Gold Rush came to me and it completely, it wouldn't change how I feel. I still would rather not see, um, I would really still not like to see Rebecca uh, Fulgida or uh, Rebecca Goldsturm. I would prefer to see that. I mean, there's something about that plant that was just so much better. The color isn't quite as brassy to me. So I kind of, you know, I can, even I can evolve on what I like or don't like, but I, I really had written off as like, I will never, I would never have that in my own garden. Uh, so I do understand that I, I might be on the, so it was 51% the or the ones that didn't like it. I might've been in that. I might've been in that camp, generally speaking. Gold. Well, and you, you know, I wanted to talk to you about Allium because this is another plant that I just think, um, I'll give my opinion first here, everybody, just to, just to, to lay ground. I think we had the large globe alliums that produced a really huge flower, certain spots in the United States. They perform a little bit better than others here in the South. They can get a little rough on them with our heat, but the foliage was a mess. Um, at that same time, so you almost had to plan to use it in a design kind of context. But now we have so many good perennial alliums, healthy foliage, just all these things. What have you seen? Cause I know you've had a front row seat for it of, of that. Just now it seems like there's a lot of them that are great, but again, I, I don't know if people are as aware of them as maybe they should be. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, when I talk about alliums, I know that the majority of people that I'm, that, that are listening to me are thinking of, the bulbs, the, 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 the big, the big ones. And I think then they look at what I'm showing and they're like, what? And that doesn't make a lot of sense, but I do think that there's some great ones out there. Um, we're, we're doing a, a small version of an allium trial. I've yet to flesh it out completely. Um, but you know, things like uh, summer beauty, certainly, uh, as a great performer and then it's dwarf, uh, summer peekaboo, uh, it's dwarf version. Well, not so much dwarf, it's just compact. We'll call it compact. 
uh, Millennium, of course. I mean, those are real doers. Those are those plants really do well. And of course, if you can compare that great floral show with a great um, leaf, or at least a, a not a you know deteriorating leaf, I think you you really you've really found a good thing. So I do think that um, I, I actually hope that more of those do enter the market. I, I would like to see more. Um, you know, I'm, I'm using finger quotes right now, sort of exploitation of that that type of a plant because I think I think they work incredibly well. And they're for us, they've been, I mean, they don't they don't miss it, they don't skip a beat in our clay soils. They they like that. I mean, obviously I don't know exactly what they do down south, but they do, you know, in the north they're quite good. Um they've been great here. They've been great here. Yeah. I've got, you know, summer beauty, I've got big beauty, which is a, a newer introduction from Brent. Yes. Um, Millennium. I mean, they've they've all done outside Chai Vet, yeah. which is I think also Brett's another Brent's another shout out. Um, just all been really just super rock solid, and and I think to me that's what makes them also exciting. Going back to our earlier conversation yeah. about you know the regionality, but there are some plants that just have massive adaptability in their yeah. range, and I feel like alliums are are one of those. Let's switch gears to something else here as we head down the home stretch. Grasses. So you have definitely had in your position the viewpoint of where grasses were. Right. And they were they were definitely more in this. Uh, you saw them in some naturalistic design usage by people. Then the great irony to me, Richard, is you saw them there. And then you saw them in like parking lots. You know, it was like, the, <laughs> that was the places they lived. They lived over there and in parking lots. But now in this last 25, 30 years, it's slowly gone in this other direction where maybe one day on availability list, they'll just be listed with the rest of the plants, Richard. <laughs> they won't have their yeah, own special yeah. grass designation. Do you think that is where we're headed, where we're seeing them maybe incorporated more in just garden settings? I do. And I think going back to what I said earlier about the, the these people who are, are talking and and uh, and sort of uh, lecturing and writing about plants in in relationships with other plants, they're going to do they're doing a great service to, you know, Claudia West, which, you know, you know, all, you know Roy Diblick is no no maintenance concept. It's getting the grasses in there, getting getting them. I think that will that. I think that's making a difference. And I think over time that will be the case. I will admit that early on in my career, uh, first of all, I started out as a woody person. So I, that's what I noticed more, more than anything. Here I, I had to get into perennials and, and I, I love perennials. Grasses I came to later than I, I care to admit. I, I, I've said, I've, I know people have heard me say, well, grass looks like a grass. I mean, you know, that's kind of how I viewed it. I don't anymore, but uh, I do think that they they are a plant group that you can do so much with, and they shouldn't. It shouldn't. I don't think they should be. <clears throat> I, I'm trying. I'm personally, I'm trying to get away from. Uh, you know, this plant goes really well with this, 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 and ornamental grasses. Like they're all the same. It's like, how about if you list out what those ornamental grasses are, just like you listed out those perennials? 
I think that just something simple like that will go a long way to people looking at it differently. I think it was, I think it was my grass article in Fine Gardening where I might have actually said that. It's like, how many times have we all read that? I mean, every garden writer I know or I've read, seemingly at some point, that's how they deal with partners or, or you know, uh, companion plants as a, you know, this, 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 and ornamental grasses. So I do think that, that that's a plant group that um, I think in a way it needs to be, people need to be shown how to do it, what to do with it. Uh, I was just listening to a talk, uh, it was a Roy Diblick, Roy Diblick talk, and he was, he pointed out a Carl Furster. I think it was Roy. I hope I'm giving it credit to the right person and pointed out, it's like, this is how you see it. It's like a line of soldiers. And, and then he showed it in a planting where it was like, okay, that's a, a way more interesting use of that plant. But how many times in my life have I seen that? I don't think that's the first, but it might be just a handful. It's almost always a mass planting, a lot of times in a line, where how interesting is that? Yeah, the grass has its merits, but in that kind of environment, how interesting is that? Interplant it with something. Let it be the punctuation in a, in a, in a planting. Um, so I do think I do think it's I do think it's changing. And again, I, I do attribute a lot to the people who are, are are looking at things differently these days. Well, and we have had, and it's been one of the great things. The podcast has been a beneficiary of this. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of talks that you've seen as well. That if any positive has come out of this last eighteen months, twenty months of pandemic, from a gardening perspective. Um, it's been, I think we've had a lot of voices step out in a more yeah. public way in more media. I think in many ways, the horticulture and nursery world for a long time has been guilty of uh, preaching to the choir slash converted. And we're doing a little bit more outward talking to people um, and meeting them on platforms online through different ways than what had been done in the past. I mean, I love trade shows as much as the next person, Richard, but you know, <laughs> these trade shows, I don't. These, <laughs> these trade shows are just sort of like social clubs where we all get to say we haven't seen each other since last year. Yeah. So um, I, I think some of that has, has really benefited a lot of the plants we're, we're, we're yeah. talking about today. And let me, let me spring one on you here. Uh, I think I know you've, child some of the grasses the one that i find probably the trickiest at the moment to point people towards something is schizocariums that it doesn't seem to have with the antropogons it seems like there's some um, good selections for people but schizocarium still seems like one to me that i haven't found like here's a, a top group have you found any that you feel confident in yeah i i mean to me that's that's a plant for well, first of all I would see that in the landscape uh, locally, uh, in the in you know the the uh, our prairie here at the at the Chicago Botanic or the Morton Arboretum's prairie, uh, up at the University of Wisconsin prairie. You know, so you see it like that. I mean, how do you not love it? But I would see it in the landscape, and it would just be laying on its side. You know, it was like so. I, you know, that was kind of my feeling. I was like, well, upright, it was quite nice, but it's mostly on the ground. So. I, why am I, why do I care? So in our trial, we looked at quite a few. 
Um, there are some standouts that I really do like. I mean, plugging our own, it's not ours. We didn't, we introduced it. We didn't originate it. Uh, Carousel, uh, which is a, is a, always stands up. And it's different from most of them. Mo many of them have sort of a straight up and down or a, a V-shaped habit. Uh, Carousel has almost like we always describe it as a bowl shape, but that always implies that it's open in the center and it's not. But it's sort of like, you know, maybe tulip shaped, I'll call it, sort of rounded. And it's just a gorgeous plant. It's not the bluest, but it's still quite blue and it has great fall color and it's a doer. It's, it's a local selection. And then, of course, uh, Brent Horvath again. Um, by the way, I can't tell you how many times I've commented on Brent and he's walked in a room. I don't think he's going to do that today, but I've been giving a lecture and I look up and he's walking in the room. I was like, oh my gosh, this is hilarious. But uh, Brent has one called Jazz, which I don't think has got enough traction, to be honest. That's an amazing plant. To me, that's the blues upright. I always get, uh, I always a little mystified when someone's going on and on about the blues being an upright plant. It's like, I've never seen it as an upright plant. I mean, it starts out that way, but it's always laying down before the end of the year. Well, jazz is a, a smaller version. It's still not a small plant. I mean, it's, it's you know, but it's gorgeous. It's an absolutely gorgeous plant, great fall color. It has the blue of the blues, which is where it's, it's, it's got the shape and the color of the blues, but it's a, it's a, it's a plant that's not gonna, has ne never felt fell over for me. Uh, Prairie Munchkin is quite good, you know, another small one. There's, there's quite a few, and I think there's more coming. I do think that's the plant group that we will see additionals to um, in, in the coming years. I, I, I know that there are, I know people, there are people I know that are working on them or looking at them. So I do think that's something that will, will come about. But I, I think you're right. They don't get the... Um, I don't think they get the um, the credit they deserve, and maybe it's because they have a lot of people view them the same way I did. But I also think, just an aside, and I and I haven't thought this out fully, fleshed it out to the point where <clears throat> I'm going to give a talk on it. But I think maybe we compartmentalize too much. You know, native people only want to talk about natives. Perennial people only want to talk perennials. Grass people maybe they'll talk about. Maybe they'll include that in perennials, but maybe they won't. You know, and so we're compartmentalizing to the point where how about pulling those all together? Because that's what a garden is. It's not all of one thing. And shrubs, in, same thing, bring the shrubs in there. So I actually, I think that might might be a little bit of the issue too, where grasses are concerned. They're, they're shunted off to another category. And who's going to talk about that? Is it, I, I can only think of a few people I've, I've ever heard over the years who just gave a grass talk. Well, if they're the only ones doing it and nobody else wants to incorporate them in with perennials, who's, how are people hearing about them? I could not agree with you more. The and I, and I'll tell you. And you mentioned already, Bressingham, the person. And I was really fortunate, just through whatever circumstance of when I started getting really interested in plants, was Adrian Bloom. Right. I, I got three or four of his books, uh, the Gardening with Conifers book. There were several of them, and the thing that really hit me about it was he was gardening with everything. They were just plants. That there, yeah. there wasn't that compartmentalization to it. It was a conifer. It was a woody shrub. It was a grass. It was a perennial. It was an annual. It, it, it didn't matter. And I think, again, I would point maybe to the industry has had a problem with with 
breaking it out and like you know the departments in the in the nursery and like this is where the woody shrubs go and this is the evergreens and and it is this odd compartmentalization i couldn't agree with you more i mean that that's something that i have always felt like that if you can flip that switch for yourself and just start seeing them right. as plants right it's way more we're interesting even doing, we're even doing it now with natives it's like natives and then there's native ours God forbid you talked about the two together, and but then does native ours go with perennials? I mean, I don't. It's like let's throw them all together, throw them all, to, and then you know, and then we break it down even further. What about pollinators? How about just the pollinator? I mean, I get that you want to be able to have a list of things, but ultimately, it's really great when people pull it all together, you know, for you. And I think garden centers. Um, uh, independent garden centers have that greatest opportunity. Big box aren't going to do it. Um, but garden centers do, and they think they do that. I'm not sure that I'm, I'm saying they don't. I think they do that. They put together things. They show plants together, whether it's in a grouping where they sell the plant right from it or in their own displays that they create that are more permanent. I think that helps people and, and gets them more interest in that. But I do, I will say, you know, mostly people are copycats. They have what they have because their neighbor has that and their neighbor has that and their neighbor has that. It's always interesting when I see a neighborhood where something super uncommon is you can see it in multiple gardens. It's like that always intrigues me. It's like, wow, that's that's really cool because these people are obviously sharing a really cool plant instead of just copying the use in front of the uh, under the, you know, the picture window and things like that where they're actually. I mean, but but having said that, I do I don't want to disparage landscape contractors. Ultimately, they have to have to um, guarantee those plants will live for people, or their landscapes will live. So I get that it's a harder thing. But in the home garden, creativity and and sort of freedom should flow. I think that's uh, I think that's the way it should work. Well, last night I gave a talk on soil. And one of the things I mentioned, because we had a couple of questions at the end, Richard, and people asked me what I like to use for a finished mulch look. And my answer was, if you're paying attention to mulch, you don't have enough plants. And to steal a Roy, uh, to steal a Roy Diblick expression on this, you know, most people, it feels like they have bark gardens. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. If, that, if that's your well, focus, then it's sort of a problem. It's like, yeah, yeah. I don't, or there's a, I don't garden to have mulch. I guess that would be my, my mantra. My, the thought for me of pulling bark away to plant a plant just I don't get it. I've never, I have never put a layer of mulch down on my garden, my own home garden. I do admit freely. I'm one of the late, I'm probably one of the laziest gardeners anyone can meet, but I, I will say, you know, this is totally going off topic, sort of, but, you know, I do digress a lot. One of the important things, and super, it was super important to me, is from an internship, you know, or a college job that's in, a, in, a, in the green industry or whatever, it's teaching you not only what you love, but what you hate or what you do want to do and what you don't want to do. And one of the things that I learned that was crucial to where I geared my, my career, 
I learned as an intern at the Chicago Botanic Garden, I do not want to spend weeks on end mulching beds. Every day, same thing, just piles and piles and piles. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And I never have. Since I was an intern, I've never done that. I've never had to do it. I don't want to do something. So that was really beneficial to me. But I also don't think it needs it. The plants take care of that. I, I Compost is a little different, but I, I don't do compost either. I actually have uh, the luxury of having a really nice uh, soil. In this. I live in Chicago, and I, I am on one of the, the old uh, lake beds. So our uh, lake, ridge, the ridge or whatever. Uh, short, and so I do have, a. it's a sandy loam kind of, it's a nice soil. So I have that luxury. I don't feel I need to, to add anything to that. Certainly not going to add bark. Well, and, and I think Unless that, it's orange. and who's ever fallen in love with that, Richard, who's ever been, yeah. goes out yeah. one spring morning and is like, look at the gleam off of the, the bark, the mulch is the particularly nice hardwood chip this morning. I mean, it, it feels but, like that is, uh, without question, uh, in a, a commerce-driven thing well, yeah. more than anything else out there. But, the, but now they're offering color options. So somebody said, hey, maybe this color doesn't appeal to you, but orange will or green will or black will, black. I mean, or how about, how about just rocks? Let's just put rocks there. I, I, yeah, I, it doesn't, it doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me at all. I mean, I, I I don't understand that. I I really, and it's not just for this, in that case. It's not just about me being lazy. I don't. I just don't understand that. I I, but then I have taken soil classes, so I understand what's needed and what's not needed. But anyway. So what's anything in the trials that you can give us? No top secret stuff. You know, if it's well, I mean, it could be. If you want to give us top secret secrets? We'd be okay with that too, Richard. But. Anything, no that, any, anything that you're trialing or ongoing trials or, or trials that you're thinking of besides hellebores that you're excited about? Well, I am. We're we're built. We're finishing. We'll finish this year and we'll plant in, in the spring of next year our new shade evaluation garden, and that is where the the hellebores will go uh, along with a number of other things. And although it won't be shade full shade you know, in the, cause it's going to be a natural shade garden. We won't have full shade right away, but that, that garden is my, what is really exciting for me is what comes after when the shade comes. That's the, the groups I'm most excited about. But right now in the, in the trial that, that we're currently, the, the trials that we're currently doing, I'm, um, I'm kind of excited about, we, we started it last year and hopefully it's here this year is the nephophias. I've done a, I'd done a nephophia trial years ago, and I know that you know other people probably what and why, why do you care? We can't grow it, so of course we care. We're always looking for something that we don't do well or can't do at all. So I'm kind of excited by that. I'm really hopeful that 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 group comes through the winter and that we actually uh, uh, see what we saw last year, which was a phenomenal never ending display of nephophias. It was gorgeous. So I do have, those are the kind of things I, I am excited about. Um, but but gener in general, the trials that we're currently doing, um, I'm, uh, I still 
I'm still a fan of hibiscus. We're still looking at hibiscus moschutos types. I find those fascinating. I mean, uh, to me, that's an every every man plant, even though not every man wants it or has it. I think that's a plant anyone can grow, and they and they should. But uh, I'm also looking at a lot of individual things, you know, where they're not in a big trial. So things like that. I mean, that you the Eupatorium for Brent, uh, the polished brass that that fits in that category. I've got a number of selections of Sporobolus heterolepis that I I'm, I'm hopeful of. Um, there's a, um, I'm always eager, um, for anything clematis, uh, and I have a number of those in the garden right now that I'm excited. And these are the ground, you know, herbaceous clematis, yeah. not the How are those performing in what you've seen, right? No names of, of introductions, but the only thing I've noticed with that Integrifolia group is here. And again, we're talking about, you know, Hell's Inferno kids. We had 96 days above 90 degrees a year ago. So let's put all this in context for a moment. Yeah. But they are um, they are not fans of that. I can say that, A. Um, and they definitely uh, have been slow to bulk would be the phrase I would yeah. use. And how much of that is, is heat dependent, I'm not sure. Well, for us, um, the... Um, the herbaceous ones have actually done fairly well. Um, the ones that may be a little bit more complex in their in their hybridization, I think, are a little weak. Um, but you know, integrifolia. My my biggest issue with integrifolia is how do you use it? You know, I mean, how how do you how do you get someone to understand that that thing is going to flop? It's going to fall down. That's what it does. So how do you use that analysis? When I have it in my trial where it's just in a row that's what people see. And maybe they're just, you know, oh, that's disgusting. But, you know, look at the flower and you figure, you know, you got to figure that kind of stuff out. But yeah, I think generally they, they, they've done well for us. Uh, and I only do, I'm only talking about the, the herbaceous ones now, because this is the, the last couple of years is the first time in, since the mid, mid eighties or late eighties that I've not had clematis in my garden because we don't, we lost our uh, vertical, um, the, the vertical uh, quality of, of, of that trial site, we will have space for clematis in the new shade evaluation garden. Um, but this is, so I've, I've, I've grown a lot of herbaceous ones over the years, but I'm sort of tuned into them right now because of the fact that I don't, I can't do the climbers. But um, anyway, so I do think, I do think they're good. They've done well for us. I will, I will agree with you that some of them don't bulk up like they should. I mean, after, after a few years, you've still, you've got that sort of baptisia thing where there's three stems. Yeah. That's, those are the kind of things that they need to hit the road. You know, I, I think that there's only a certain point uh, where heroics are, you know, you, you do anything heroic for something is like, okay, you're just not doing it. You got to go. And, uh, and that's, a, that's an, an, a gardener's point from a gardener's point of view, how, how long are you going to baby that thing till it does something? Well, and do you also uh, find there's a, there's a difference sometimes between a plant that is a, a slower grower. And this is, this is hard for people. I think if you haven't watched this, like there are slower growing plants that do it with a bit of vigor and grace and they still feel compact and full. They're slow growers and that I'm yeah. down with, but then there are yeah. some that are just weak growers. Yes. 
Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've found myself um, talking about a plant um, and Baptisia comes to mind uh, or in any number of plants that I've grown on our green roof where I found myself giving excuses for the fact that they don't look like they do in the landscape. And I'm like, quit doing that. You know, talk about their merits and the fact that, you know, don't just say, well, you know, for where it is, it's really good. Just tell people what it is and that it's doing really well. And, you know, I mean, if you want to talk about bat slow on a green roof, talk about Baptisia, the species. Hans Hansen's plants, on the other, other hand, are like they didn't know they were on a green roof. They're just as lush, just as phenomenal in, in eight inches of uh, mix, minimum of eight inches of mix. You, would know, you wouldn't know the difference, but they're hybrids. They have the vigor. But the species are slow and... And they're they're you know they're slow in in the ground on the green roof it's almost exponent, exponential so as they start shooting up two stems you're like whoa look at that there's two stems but yeah I do I do think that there there's definitely a distinction between a plant that is uh, is showing its potential but is slow versus one that is is just not a great plant and it it just doesn't have any vigor. And I can tell there's been a lot of plants over the years where I've uh, they just they, they lack vigor and it doesn't make any sense because they're touted as being vigorous. And, I, you know, I always have to factor in my growing conditions. I know they're not ideal, uh, but sometimes I think it's just a plant. And I, I don't like to, again, make excuses for me or my garden or my program. I just to say plant just doesn't doesn't work. But of course, you know, it's like anything I can then have someone. Like it's like a review on Amazon. Someone, you know, someone hated it, and that you know, I absolutely thought it was the worst thing on earth. And someone else thought it was the you know second coming. So it's like you know, it can be, go both ways. And I, I've been caught in those. But what I always stick to, and I and I don't have any issue with. It, I just tell people, I I accept that that's what you saw. You should accept that this is what I saw. I'm not telling you you'll see the same thing. I'm just saying this is what I saw. You know, it's all true. It's all true. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to blanket it for everybody. I'm always impressed, by the way, again, digressing, but I'm always impressed when someone from another part of the country listens to what I'm saying and can connect the dots versus someone who listens to what I'm saying and set, looks me in the face and said, this isn't pertinent to me. I like the ones that can say, I get it. I can, I'm, I know enough about plants. I like plants enough. I can, I can connect those dots. I don't need you to handhold for me. So I do appreciate that versus the ones that just say, you're in Chicago. I'm in Seattle. I don't care. Well, the, I don't care either. But, but the point is you grow a lot of the same stuff we grow. Yeah. Um, I think and, that makes perfect sense. You know, and I, I think that's one of the things that we've, we've hit a couple of times in this conversation is it's, We've got to contextualize it, the information that's pertinent to us. Clearly, yeah. when I evaluate a plant to bring in here, you know, I, I do my due diligence, you know, look at place of origin for the species if it's something I haven't grown before. And I think to myself, you know, you brought up Nifofia. That's a plant that for me, it's really not the heat that they tend to struggle with, but it is our heavier composition soils that if we get into very wet periods um, even in the summer, which we can be prone to, and you guys can have that same effect sometimes up there, they, that's where I see them. 
struggle a lot of times, but yet we're not cold, you know, to the point of really affecting their winter hardiness as far as just um, temperature goes. So I think it's all, you have to extract the applicable information. All right, very end here. Last two plants I want, want you to hit for us. Maybe you can do them as a combo, Richard. Vernonia, which Vernonia. feel like under the radar, feels under the radar. Very, very then, under the radar. Then the second one, it also feels under the radar, Amsonia. Both of those, yeah. to me, feel like an, an interesting. They, they bookend yeah. the season, really. And just yeah, in, in the case of Amsonia herbrechtii and Vernonia lettermanii, they bookend with the same plant. Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've taught those plants and people confuse them and, and if they're not in flower. They look so much like, uh, yeah, both groups I like. Vernonias, I've loved forever. Um, part of what I love is the color. I love that purple, that dark, the dark purple, the, you know, violet or whatever. You know, there, there's a slight variation in color. I love, but I also love the fact that I have to look up to, to look at them. I mean, I grew Jonesboro Giant, which is 15 feet tall. And I can't tell you, everybody loved that plant. Everybody loved it. Everybody who came into the garden are like, what is that? Because it's like a tree in the middle of a herbaceous uh, planting. But um, I do think the problem and the reason it's, it's, it's sort of under the radar, but I think it's 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 going to iron itself out sooner than later is they're too big they're just too big and i do think that lettermanii and iron butterfly have helped immensely get people not only it's a texture too with that one has helped a lot but you know brent's plant southern cross jim alt's summer series summer's end summer's end well there's a new one summer's end summer surrender summer swan song where he's these hybrids when they've all used um uh lettermanii are down in size, you know, three, four, five feet tall versus six, seven, eight feet tall. Um, what I would like to see next is hybrids or introductions that are largely um, like Missourica that's all fuzzy. I'd like to see that in the market. Uh, but again, I think this, they're just purely relegated to the native list. Nobody even looks. So I think that, and but I, unfortunate because I, I think they're amazing, and I do think. Um, but here's a quick thing. So a couple of years ago, when I had my trial going, I was walking through the garden with Alan Armitage, and we're walking along, and we're talking, and then probably about halfway down the road, he's like, "Whoa, wait a minute, are these all Vernonians?" So he was seeing them, but he wasn't really taking them in. He was fascinated. He's just like. Nobody grows it, you know? So it was like, I mean, I always feel good when someone like validates me that way. It's like, okay, that wasn't off base looking at these things. But that's also one of the things I like to accomplish with a trial. Let's contribute something. Let's, let's, let's get people to understand something more than what they knew. I learn, they learn because we did it. Now, I am Sonia, I will say, uh, and by the way, I get no royalty for how many times in a day I say Brent Horvath's name. I get nothing out of it. Uh, so uh, there's no monetary money. There's no monetary uh, aspect of this. I, Brent, I will say, though, I will share with you, Richard, that he did source a bunch of hemorrhagicalis autumn minaret for me. So, awesome. I, that, so, so from that perspective, you know, I, I'm paying for them. Okay, kids, I just want everybody well, to know that. But he did help yeah. me out with a plant. That's a, it's a plant but friend it's, to plant friend solid is what that's called. 
By the way, that's my that's my absolute favorite Hemmer Callus. I'm not a I'm not a big fan of Hemmer Callus because you see him everywhere, but that's one that's really special. Yeah, Brent. So Brent has done a lot. He's doing a lot of breeding with him with uh, Amsonia, and he's introduced some really nice ones. And he's he's doing all of them. And of course, uh, Tony Avent and Hans Hansen, you know, Storm Cloud, and there's another one coming out. And I think we'll see more. Again, I think we're going to see smaller. Pubrechtii is maybe just a little too big. So ones that will bring that down and 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 uh, hopefully not too far down. Although, you know, I will say Jim Alt has got one called Verdant Venture. It's a um, ciliata variety. Filiformis, am I right yeah, on that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So that is, um, that plant isn't out yet. It's going to be out soon. It's now going to the, um, the growers. That's a phenomenal plant. And that is a small plant that we have. We've had that in the garden for probably 10 to 12 years. And it's maxes out at 28 inches tall, about five feet wide. And when it's covered in flowers or when it's in flower, it's just covered in flowers and it has a good fall color. But I do think that both of those groups deserve more attention. Um, I, I, I definitely think, and I, and I, I'm, I'm hopeful with what's come out that that will make a difference. You know, one of the Amstonia brecti, I, I planted in my garden when I first uh, started gardening in Chicago in the early nineties. And I had to get rid of it because it was half my garden. Um, but now I did add storm cloud in um, because it's a, it's a smaller plant, uh, different texture and everything, but I, I, I did add it in last year. But anyway, yeah, I do think both are great groups I, and natives. They they should be they should be used more uh, as often as possible. Even the, I, I mean, I would I would kill to have. Maybe I should get rid of my magnolia and put a Jonesboro giant in its place uh, at home. In my setting, that would probably be the smarter of the two choices with the spring frost events on some magnolias. All right, la very last yeah. one, Richard, is a favor. Is a favor. You've mentioned this new shade installation it's going in are you going to do an epimedium trial at some point yes yes it was not for the this is not initial i think that's a couple of years down the line but yes i want to do a really good epimedium trial so here's the thing with epimedium and also the thing with polygonato which are both groups on you know those are my fantasy lists for for shade gardening when i truly have some shade those are two groups that I have a serious question about, which is how big should the trial be? Because availability and costs are, are the, the issue. It's a greater issue with polygonatum uh, than with medium, but they're expensive and you don't find them in a lot of places. So is that, will that help that group? Will it encourage people to buy it, you know, and then when they go to look for it, is it available? That becomes the issue. I mean, polygonatum is on the other side of that is, you know, I was at a talk a couple of years ago and they're talking about polygonatum that they, they were buying in Asia for like $10,000 per, per plant. And so you look at what's commercially available. It's a, it's, it's a nice list, but it's not much. But if you look at what you could get, if you really stretch the commercial availability, but then at what point can you 
can you recommend to an average person, oh, here's a plant, but you only find it for 60 or $80. So I, anyway, but yes, I would love to do Epimedium. I think that um, that's a phenomenal group. And we did, we did a trial years ago. It had its own issues and, but some good things came out of it. But generally speaking, um, I was still learning at that time when we did it. Now I feel more comfortable with uh, pushing forward on a significant trial of epidemiums. It's a great group. ties of these old abandoned rails wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own and I try to empathize with all they bear there's something about the sun that brings me back to life it's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way state of mind But that's not not for me to Everything 